Does everyone have a handout that needs one? So we're on Smyrna tonight, so you guys need a handout? Um, not a handout, but a hand up. No, we're not talking about that. Can you take a few of those back? Oh, we need one up in the booth. Here, I'll just, I'll tell you what. You need one? Okay. Anyone else? Euler? Just throw it up there. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm going to leave them back here, if you don't mind. I'll leave them with yeah. you. And if you see folks come in, you might check with them. And then when we're done, we put them out on the connections counter. So, all right. So we are, we are um, talking about Smyrna. Now, we've already covered Ephesus, and Mark did for me. Praise the Lord. Thank you, for uh, Mark, for covering me last week. That was a blessing. Amy and I celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary, so that was good. Yeah, whoop, whoop. So uh, we were encouraged. All right, so uh, we, I left off, last time I was here, I left off talking about Ephesus and out of Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Uh, Mark ran you down through Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Papias, Epicurus, Basilius, uh, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, and... Um, and the deviations that took place from Alexandria, Egypt, starting with Philo, uh, before Christ was even born in the University of Alexandria, Alexandria Pant, uh, Panteus, uh, Clement of Alexandria, and the influences of, of Alexandria, which are still with us to this day, uh, as, as you guys know from the teaching. So that leads us back to Revelation chapter 3. So let's open up our Bibles. Revelation chapter, I said 3, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, I've already prayed, I usually read and then pray, but let's, uh, let's read the text. I prayed and now we're, we're reading. Let's just pick it up in verse 1 because it's not very far to go. And uh, we'll touch on Ephesus and jump into Smyrna. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast uh, tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast slept thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do thy first and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now you see there uh, it says the candlestick out of his place. So you can, uh, if you go back to chapter 1, the candlesticks are clearly in verse 20. Um, uh, the, seven, the seven stars are the angels, and the seven, of the, of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So uh, you get the definitions for what these candlesticks are. Uh, and now when you get down to verse um, 6, this is important. We're going to touch on this again as we go forward. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which, also, uh, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, which we know now is in the third heaven. Okay, now point, or verse 8, which is where we are tonight. So he switches churches here in verse 8, and he says, Under the, the angel of the church of Smyrna, write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. 
Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. All right, we're going to stop there. So verses 8 through 11 represent for us a period of church history, which we identify with the church of Asia historically that was in Smyrna. And so um, let me uh, get to where we are. Oh, we're in Smyrna. There we go. So first thing we want to do is understand the time frame. And and, in your blank there, the first thing that we see here is that Smyrna, church age, takes place during the time of the persecution of the pagan of, of pagan the persecutions of pagan Rome toward anyone called Christian, and so um, there were ten Roman persecutions that started after the first century and uh, lead up to the uh, what's called the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which we was far from holy, but that we'll get into that later. And so this is a, a horrible, murderous time, and it wasn't like constant persecutions. These these ten persecutions just came in waves. Um, and so uh, and you can read about those in, uh, in Fox's Book of Martyr. Uh, this age starts approximately 200 A.D. and ends in 325 A.D. with the Council of Nicaea, N-I-C-E-A. Um, oh, there you go. <clears throat> the Council of Nicaea. And the seed of deviation in Ephesus' time period uh, blossoms into endless um, debated and criti- criticisms concerning... Um, Um, concerning the authority of God's word versus the authority of the church fathers concepts. So many church historians refer to this time, by the way, of the Nicaea period as the anti-Nicaean period. I think that's in your notes, so you can read that. And many of the men that engaged in debates uh, never preached or taught the Bible. They never uh, discipled anyone, and they never had any spiritual fruit. The whole time, pagan Rome was attempting to destroy the church by torturing and killing anyone that claimed to be a Christian. Uh, and so you know, uh, in Acts chapter 11, uh, that's the first time the word Christian appears, right? And so let's just quickly go back and review ourselves and historically and remember where that comes from. Uh, in Acts chapter 11, it's not in your notes, Acts 11, 28. Um, I'm sorry, verse 26. It says, And when they had found him, uh, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass the whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so uh, the, the term Christian initially was a derogatory term uh, because people, why was it a derogatory term? You guys know? Some of you probably know. Why was Christian, what, what, what did it represent when someone was called a Christian? Yeah, little Christ. So they were like, you little Christ, you know, and little Messiah. That's what Christ is, is a Messiah. So they were mocking. It was initially a mocking uh, term, but they're like, sure, yeah, Christ is in me, the hope of glory, no problem. So they just took that on. Uh, when I was in high school, they used to call me and Todd Rose Jesus. And I'd lo- I'd, I was like, hey, that's a compliment. I hope I look like Jesus. So, you know, I am born again. So, um, and so, you know, Jesus is a, being a, like a Christian became a, a thing that was obviously a, a problem because of uh, the Jews, they didn't appreciate Christ as their Messiah, so they would persecute, as you can see in Paul's writings, you had the Judaizers, uh, and then you had uh, the pagan Romans, right, who were offended because, uh, why would a pagan be offended at the, at the concept of Jesus? 
You should know this because it's the same thing you'll have today. Yeah, the, the, it's the same problem you have with Hinduism uh, or any other pagan religion is that the, 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 the claim that, that Jesus himself made that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. It destroys your pantheon of gods. He's the one true God. And so uh, the Hindu's okay as long as he's another god. You know, uh, your, your college is okay as long as he's another god. But uh, as soon as you, and your job's okay as long as he's another god. But whenever you're like, hey, Jesus is the God, and you're going to go this way all the way, that's a problem. And so Christians, um, Christians have always caused problems for pagans because there's one way, there's one truth, and there's one life. And, uh, and so, and it seems, and, and, and you'll still get ridiculed for that, by the way. Um, but we aren't persecuted, nothing at all, like they were in the age of Smyrna. So let's talk about the text, Smyrna, understanding the text here. Uh, considering the meaning of Smyrna, um, I'm missing something. There we go. <clears throat> so uh, Smyrna, you can see the M-Y-R-N, so it has to do with myrrh, and myrrh is an expensive perfume, perfume uh, that was used in the embalming process. It's associated with bitterness and death, right? So embalming is not is not something that you, uh, this wasn't like perfume that you put on to, you know, go out and impress your lady uh, wife, I would be my wife in my case, lady friend, uh, my wife or uh, your husband or whatever. This is dealing with embalming fluid, so uh, bitterness and death. And its, uh, its name supernaturally represents the characteristics of the period. So it's associated with what was going on in the church, which was bitterness and, of course, death. So Jesus reminds them uh, that they are not alone in verses 8 and 9. So let's go back in Revelation once again and just have a look at the text uh, once again. Revelation chapter 2, not 3. And let's see. Let me get back there. It says, And the angel of the church of Smyrna write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Who's that? It's Jesus, right? I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. But thou art rich. You notice how in Revelation 3.17, the Laodicean church thinks they're rich. This church appears to be in poverty, and yet the Lord says, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so he's aware intimately with what's going on in the church. And so that's encouraging. When you're dealing with persecution, he's always aware. He's always here. You know, these things save the first and the last. He's intimately aware of what's going on. When you think about uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, the Bible says that he's a high priest. Um, that he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So he doesn't just know kind of like generically what's happening, like he watched the news. He even knows how we feel about it. And so he's reminding them that, you know what, I'm the first and the last, and I'm here with you. He's also, uh, he says, I'm alive, right? He's alive. Uh, he was dead and he's alive, right? He's risen again. The power of the resurrection abides on them. And then he says, and I'm aware of what's happening. I know thy works uh, and tribulation and, and, the, and the poverty that you're in. And he also understands the patience that which they are enduring these situations. So, and so God is, is all about, you know, not leaving us alone. So that's something practical. If you're ever being persecuted at work or uh, maybe family, there is some, some, you know, we often say, 
like there's no persecution in America. But there is, I mean, mainly in family, sometimes on your job a little bit. Um, you know, so it's not like India or China or something like that. But there is some, you know, you know what it's like. And when you're in those situations, you know, maybe you've trusted Christ and you've identified with him in believer's baptism or something like that, and your family's like, no, you're denying us, and they feel really hurt. Um, you know, those types of things, it's important to remember that the Lord knows. Um, you know, he's always there. He's very aware of what's going on. Uh, he's alive, and he's in charge, and he's aware of what's happening, and he's there to help you. And so uh, I had a friend of mine. He's a pastor now, but when he first got saved, he would have to, he, every day, every Sunday, he would go to Mass, and he, he'd go to church, and then he'd go to Mass. It took him like a, a year to, to work through uh, what that, because it wasn't just leaving the doctrine and the teaching, which he was happy to do. It was the fact that that's how his whole family was identified, as, he, as uh, in this case, as Roman Catholics. And so, and the teaching is, is if you leave the church, you've lost your salvation, too, especially for hardcore Roman Catholics. So, uh, and so it was a big deal. Uh, and so, uh, point C, though, let me move on or I'll get off track here. So they had to contend with blasphemy uh, being taught from the synagogue of Satan. Now, this is important when we get to verse 9 uh, here, dealing with the synagogue of Satan, uh, because he's already talked about the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and we'll talk about this a little more as we go. And notice it's synagogue. It's not local church of Satan. Uh, that's an interesting uh, notation by the Holy Ghost. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are, are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So Satan has a, he has a church, so to speak. He has a, a worship center. So if God had a church and a Bible, right, and he does, well, so does the devil, right? The devil has uh, the Bible. He is a counterfeiter. Uh, everything God does, he, he emulates it. He tries to fake it. And he will never make it, but he tries. So the synagogues are places of worship and teaching of the Word of God. Actually, the, the, the way we order our services is actually a replication of how they used to do it in the synagogues, in the Jewish synagogues, the Baptists in particular, um, with the reading of the Word, the worship, the reading of the Word, prayer, all of that is how the synagogue would work. And uh, this is letting us know that there's a synagogue of Satan. So uh, the synagogue of Satan has the purpose of teaching false doctrines uh, disguised as the Word of God. And so that's always the uh, the M.O. Hmm. I have lost. I got my, got my laser. Put Ron's eye out. Oh, it doesn't matter. So can someone flip my slide? There it goes. Okay. So where was I? So he, he, does, he has teaching false doctrines disguised as the Word of God. And so you guys understand that. I think uh, it's very clearly that's, that's uh, so this all started. This isn't nothing, this is not something new that just happened with TV preachers in the 20th century. Um, the the, the, the uh, Satan has been working uh, to disguise false doctrine within his own systematic way of religion for centuries. And so um, the group of men <coughs> uh, leading the church at this time are the anti-Neocene church fathers. Now, when you hear that, now, how many, let me just pause here. How many of you have even heard of this? Anti-Nicaea Church Fathers, or Nicaean Church Fathers. Okay, so we've just, maybe one or two of you, uh, maybe even HBI went through church history or something, but, but uh, we don't, around here, you don't hear us throwing that out very often. But when you read, like, Philip Schaff Church History, that's how they're going to refer to this church period. And when they do that, 
they're going to have these names that are listed on your handout, Origen, Cyprian, um, uh, Hippolytus, Clement, uh, Athanasius, uh, Didymus, um, Marcion, etc. And for us that are just reading, and this guy like Philip Schaff, you're just going to say, well, okay. And you're going to read and think they're all the same, but they're not. And so just because they're called the church fathers doesn't mean they were Bible believers. Okay. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the Nicene Creed came at uh, 325. Yeah, these came before, before the Creed. So uh, after the Creed are a whole new group of guys. So, um, so which would make sense, anti-Nicaea father, so that they predate the Nicaea Council. Um, and so the, 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 the main area of deviation at that time comes from the University of Alexandria <clears throat> and uh, led by um, Adamantius Origen. So we, around here, when we talk about Origen, we often talk about, uh, you just hear him called Origen. But his, his full name is Adamantius, kind of like Adamant, right? So Adamantius. So let me just let me just give you. I have a little bit more on Mr. Origen. Um, <clears throat> let me get to that here in the school of Alexandria. So in Alexandria, uh, there was a lot going on. Um, Alexandria, you know, was around before. Jesus Christ um, existed, uh, and it's it's been around. You know, actually, there's still a school in Alexandria, the University of Alexandria, Egypt, uh, and so uh, the school of Alexandria was not solely a Christian institution. It was noted though for theology, just like you could go to Harvard, uh, or which actually used to be a Bible college, or Yale, right, and still get a theological degree, though they don't teach really theology, right? So Alexandria was like that. So teachers that at Alexandria were guys named, like a guy named uh, Pantaneus, who we've covered. He was a convert of Stoicism, called a man of superior learning, and uh, he was called the deepest Gnostic, right? So we've talked about Gnosticism, where they worship knowledge, the deepest philosophical Christian, so they thought. And he was a student of Clement, who you learned about last week. He was martyred in 216 and started the, the Catechetical School of Alexandria in 190 A.D. So about 100 years after... After the book of Revelation was given, uh, there was a, a catechetical school of Alexandria started by this uh, Pantaneus. Okay, so that's really when that's these are the guys that have a lot of influence. And then Clement of Alexandria, <clears throat> he died in, in 220. He's called the father of Alexandrian Christian philosophy. So Clement's also mentioned as an anti-Nicene. He was a convert from heathenism and was well taught in Hellenistic philosophy and literature. What, so let me pause there, because you hear things like Hellenistic, you're thinking, who is she? So what is, <clears throat> when you say, when I say Hellenistic, what am I, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Because I want to make sure you get grass. Huh? Right, the Greeks. So it would be a Greek, Greek philosophical, uh, Greek philosophy, Greek writers, Greek educated, which at the time, uh, and really even still today, that's why all of our educational systems, you know, right, when you go to the university, it's all Greek. All the letters, the sororities, the fraternities are all in Greek because it still has a, you know, it's still associated <clears throat> with uh, the higher education, higher learning. And so, which gets you back to the, 
the previous church age where, where, where Jesus points out there are Nicolaitans, people exalting themselves above the laity. So, uh, so Clement of Alexandria, <clears throat> he also held the Gnostic view, uh, and he, he claimed to be a perfect Christian. Uh, he was greatly influenced by Plato and Aristotle. Uh, now, were Plato or Aristotle Christians? Not in the way, no way in the world, because they had lived before Jesus. So, uh, so no. <clears throat> so he followed uh, Pantaneus as leader. So he's the second guy. Clement followed uh, Pantaneus. So you have the school starts in 190. Uh, Clement follows after him. And then the third guy, <clears throat> so the third guy to follow is this is uh, Adamantus Origen. Okay, so we talk about Origen a lot. And the list goes on. Uh, and even to the day, the, the, today, the Coptic Church of Egypt claims successive line of leaders of this particular institute of higher learning. Hey, you guys have heard of the Coptic Church? I have some pictures, but I didn't put them up. Um, yeah, the, there's a, the, the leader of the Coptic Church today is a gentleman named Pope Theodore II. So they have their own. The Pope is not exclusive, uh, you know, newsflash to Americans. Uh, to the Vatican and and the Roman Church, there's also an Egyptian Coptic Church, and they claim a pope. Uh, and the, currently, the pope is Theodore the Second, and they have a successive line of leaders going all the way back to uh, Clement and Pantaneus, right in the school of Alexandria. And so, <clears throat> preceding him was a fellow named Pope Shenandoah. Shenandoah sounded like he was from the south. The third. And uh, he was at the University of Cairo. He died on March 17th of 2012. Uh, Shenandoah had been the Pope of the Coptic Church since 1971. And at that time, there were only four Coptic churches in North America. But since that Pope took over, um, the, the Coptic Church expanded in the U.S. to 200 Egyptian Coptic churches. He had a little bit of tidbit there. So you can find a list on the Internet. The only one in Missouri is located in St. Louis. And the principles used to expand the church are consistent with Pantaneus, Clement, and Origen. So how about that? So 2,000 years later, almost, <clears throat> you still have these guys uh, expanding their church. So top-down diocese structure is very much like the Roman Catholic Church uh, or the Russian Orthodox Church, the Lutherans, uh, the Mormons, and the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, all their structures are similar. It's a top-down system. Um, that's because, in their mind, they administrate the kingdom of Christ and not autonomous local New Testament churches and believers. It is, it is central government, so to speak. And a commitment to ecumenical Christianity is what they all claim. Uh, all the ones I just mentioned, except for the uh, Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. But um, <clears throat> he endorsed the world. This, uh, p- the previous pope, I'm sure the current one as well, endorsed the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, and the Oriental Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, there's a unity of sorts between them and Rome which is no surprise. And the Coptics are uh, our works-based system, which reflects works-based theology, and Origen <clears throat> and the founders of the School of Alexandria. So Origen, he looms large in history. So let me talk to you a little bit about, about the influence of Alexandria, which you got into last week, but I don't think you got into all the things I'm going to share tonight. So Alexandria is well known as one of the places that had the greatest influence in bringing pagan ideas into the church. So <clears throat> we call that syncretism. Has anyone ever heard of syncretism? Okay, you HBI guys and, and pastors in the back. So syncretism is, is like, like, like literally, um, if you go to India, let's say, um, you can walk in and they'll have Vishnu and Ganesh. They'll have all these pagan Hindu gods, 
statues that you worship, you bring offerings to, and all of that. And they'll and they will and then they'll have Jesus right there with them. So that's called syncretism, right? They just just bring it all together. Like I said earlier, pagans are okay with Jesus as long as he is not the God, right? He's just a God. And so uh, they'll just they just so this mindset comes from Alexandria, and it comes ultimately as you as you could understand. If these fellows uh, started off with Plato and Aristotle, well, what they were really focused on, very obviously, is the pantheon of gods, right? Zeus being the chief god of many, uh, and so uh, which is basically worshiping of demonic act beings ultimately, because that's what all that's about. So. Um, so just go watch your, your next Marvel movie, and you'll have it all figured out. And so, um, <clears throat> so uh, I want to get down to this issue of catechetical. What does that mean? Because in the round, around these parts, we don't use those type of words. Those are fighting words. So not really. I'm just kidding. But <clears throat> instead of just believing the New Testament, and, and now there was a tradition of elders mixing in Gnostics, uh, Gnostic and Hellenistic beliefs, uh, it was here where the philosophical teaching of Plato and Aristotle was introduced into the New Testament teaching. So remember the term catechaic uh, learning. Is a me- all that means is it's a method of study that was established by Socrates, the philosopher, not Paul the Apostle. So the, the catechaic uh, metho- method of learning was established by Aristotle, not Paul, right? And so... Uh, so you can even, some churches today, they even call it, you're going to go to catechism. And when you go to catechism, what are you, what's happening? You're being indoctrinated. You're being taught, right, uh, typically about your uh, method and means of salvation. And uh, in some ways, uh, making a decision on your own fruition to receive it. So one key uh, to remember is that no matter how spiritual a person appears to be, if that person introduces something into Christianity that never meant that God never meant to be there, then that person can be classified as a heretic, which that's scary for anybody who teaches the Word of God. That's why the Word of God has to be rule supreme. And that can be said of the schools of Rome and Alexandria. They were heretical schools introducing ideas and teaching into Christianity. And one key that I hope we all know is that when God closed the book on the New Testament, uh, he closed it, right? So there was nothing to be added from other teaching and philosophy that he forgot to add. There's been a, even recently in circles that are very close to me, I've had this discussion with certain ones that should know better about the sufficiency of Scripture, right? Like, does God reveal truth outside of the Bible? Well, why, why do you even ask, right, if, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and this is his mind? Obviously, there's, under, there's things we understand outside of Scripture. God even says that in Romans, right, that the natural things are created, for people who won't acknowledge the truth, right? So that they, it bears witness with their conscience. So we're not idiot sticks like that. We obviously understand that. But, he, but I will tell you, <clears throat> that's, a, you gotta be a, that's a really slippery slope. Uh, when, you, when you start, I, and I, hey, I've preached this, and I will still preach it. God can communicate to people without his Bible very easily, you know, and I, I believe that. You know, some guy all of a sudden has a, like they say, there's no atheist in a foxhole. So war is a very effective means and, and imminent death often uh, brings you to a point of considering God, right? And so, yeah, God has ways of getting your attention other than me reading the scripture uh, or a preacher preaching or something like that. However, truth is found in the word of God. God's word is true. That's it. That's the standard. So you start sprinkling stuff from here and there uh, and, and mixing it together from outside sources, you got a problem. And so one, of the, uh, one key that I, that I hope we all understand is that the New Testament is 
perfectly preserved as we got it. So there's nothing added from other teachings, philosophies, nothing that needs to be brought in. And that's the key that the schools did not understand. And since they did not believe the books uh, that they <clears throat> that they uh, that these books were part of the Bible, they added others to give teaching that they thought should be there, right? In addition to what God had already given. So in Alexandria, uh, the scripture was was attacked. The, the the history of the Catechetical School of Alexandria is in, interesting, in that it in that we adhere it. Uh, I'm sorry. What we adhere is to Scripture, and they don't. So they, the Scripture says this about Alexandria, Egypt, in Acts eighteen twenty four. Will you look at this? Turn over to Acts eighteen. Keep a. I need to keep a. I got too many ribbons here, so I got to keep my place. But let's go to Acts eighteen for just a moment. Acts eighteen and verse twenty four. I'll get back to the outline here in just a minute. But I wanted to, I want to just kind of expand on this a little bit because it ties the the first church age that we talked about at Ephesus into the second church age that we're talking about in Smyrna. So Acts 18 and verse 24, the Bible says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, an eloquent man, right, very eloquent, and mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. So in the first century, a very eloquent, articulate, and educated man from Alexandria was preaching the gospel of John the Baptist. Right, That's what it says if you continue to read. It says, This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. That's good. And being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So now we are, we are what, 190, so we're 160, we're 100, and, uh, not 160, but 150, you know, 140 years uh, <clears throat> away from uh, the starting of the school of Alexandria. So this is still before the school is actually in, in effect by Pantaneus. But we have it, we see an eloquent man. Why? Because Alexandria was already noted. as a place of great education and learning. It was a mighty city in the Roman Empire. And so so we see this eloquent Alexandrian preaching only and understanding only the baptism of John. So he had heard and received the message of John the Baptist. Repent, you know, get baptized, prepare the way of the Lord, make your path straight, right? Get your hearts right, the Messiah is coming. He doesn't have the full grasp or understanding of what had taken place. He's not a bad guy. As a matter of fact, he ends up being quite a wonderful man. <clears throat> and so to Apollos' credit, he was privately informed and educated by a tent maker. And his wife, uh, his, the tent maker's name was Aquila, and his wife was Priscilla. And they were attending a synagogue uh, of Ephesus of all places. Go back to Acts uh, chapter 27. Acts 27. And we're going to look down at verse 6. <clears throat> it says, that, and, and uh, there... I'll give you a second to turn there as my Ah. Remember Mean Joe Green drank that whole Coca Cola? No. No, you even remember Candace, so you're not too young. You've seen it. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I don't think you were. So, anyway. Yeah, I'm old. That's okay. But uh, I date myself quite often. So, it says there was a centurion found, and he found a ship of Alexandria sailing. Notice where this ship's going. It's going into Italy. And he put us therein. So, Alexandria, their shipping lanes are open to Italy. 
and to Rome, which is the headquarters. <clears throat> and if you know much about Roman history, um, you know, Cleopatra had a thing, and she got tied into the royal family of, uh, or the, the elite families of Rome, of Rome through uh, Egypt and Alexandria. So there's a lot that's gone on there with Egypt and Rome. And throughout Scripture, Egypt is always a type of the world. Uh, so we know that the great city of Alexandria, they had this trade relationship with the country of Italy, and that's why their system appeared to be very similar even to this very day as far as their theological systems. And so <clears throat> um, it's no wonder that Satan's, thank you, uh, Satan's synagogue <clears throat> is mentioned in Smyrna because the system of higher learning for Satan uh, is based in questioning the word of God and, worship, and worshiping knowledge instead of submitting to the word of God and trusting God's words in faith. So uh, there's nothing good of any theological value that comes from Alexandria. The movement of God's Holy Spirit was brought forth <clears throat> from what city? Let me ask you guys that, see what we know, because we've already touched on it. What city was where God's theological, uh, his teaching really resonated from? In the book of Acts. When you're just going through Acts. Antioch, right. It wasn't Jeru right. Jerusalem. Uh, they were having a hard time just surviving. They were under persecution. It was in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent from, that, the, that the, the Gentile world even got the gospel, right? The church of Ephesus was planted, the, whole, the seven churches of Asia, not to mention the expansion over into uh, Europe. And so, and so uh, you see that out of Antioch, there's an Antiochian line of churches, and therefore there's also, out of the Syriac, there was also Antiochian line of Bible translations uh, in the scriptoriums of Syria. But, uh, and then in Alexandria, there were also Bible translations going on. And so you had these two schools, what we would call an Antiochian school and a, a Syrian. Now that's going to be debated vehemently by scholars today because they hate that truth, but it's still the truth. The Bible was never in question in the churches of Asia because they had the completed canon of authority of the apostles themselves endorsing the scripture. And so there's not one recorded mention of any of the apostles working in the University of Alexandria. Uh, instead, they chose to invest in the local New Testament churches. Nobody ran off. When Paul went to Arabia, he didn't say, you know what, I'm going to run over here to Alexandria because I need to check out their theological library and see what Plato and Aristotle had to say, Right? Yeah, no, he, he gets up in about six or seven verses and blows it up in Acts 17 and just says, hey, listen, this is what I think of your guys. <laughs> you need to figure out who the unknown God is because he's the one, right? And so, so uh, no, Paul wasn't having it. So let me talk to you a little bit about origin, then we'll get back to our outline. So origin is called one of the greatest gifts to the New Testament Christianity. Or he didn't say that. That's what many call him. Yeah. Uh, most, like, most, most historians. Like, if you go to... I got a book in my office, like a textbook on church history. I should bring it out here and read it. Um, uh, and, and if I go turn over to Origin, you will not know what I'm talking. What I'm telling you today will not be in that textbook. Well, Philip Schaff, you read Philip Schaff, he's not going to point any of this out. He's just a church father. And when you hear the word church and father together, you automatically assume, well, he's on our team, right? And uh, that's, why, that's why I'm teaching church history, as a matter of fact. These are the little things that you got to know. And that's also why we have HBI, uh, by the way, which is starting soon. So if you need to get in and get started, you need to sign up immediately. Uh, and so because you got we got to pass this on. Otherwise, it's going to get lost. Uh, so anyway, uh, yes, ma'am. 
That's a really good question. So Leslie's asking uh, if I, let me make sure, let me repeat it so I make sure I understood what you said too, because I may not have heard you right. That if you're listening to somebody, somebody's teaching and they quote origin or they extol origin, you should walk away. Is that what you're saying? Right. Um, I would say that's a good question, uh, first of all, and I'm hedging, I'm, I'm hedging, hedges is hedging, um, because I cannot say, I would not say that everybody, it's, it would be arrogant for, to, for us to say, we don't know what people know, so I would judge them on the content of their character, uh, I would judge them on the content of their, of their Bible uh, exposition. Because it's entirely possible someone has a great heart and doesn't know any different. You know what I mean? So I wouldn't just throw a guy in. I wouldn't assume they're in collusion. Because I, I had to I'll give you an example. So we had a Bible conference several years ago. We're putting together French scriptures. I have a dear uh, uh, a man come by, a pastor. He's a, he's a lay pastor. He brings a French missionary. We, we assemble scriptures all week with this fella. He's a great guy. Invites us over to help in their institute. It's is a great experience. Uh, this guy's a doctor, I believe, or a master's, I don't know, degree in theology, you know. So education-wise, he's ahead of me. But for some reason, he comes to my office and sits down a few months later. Something's going on, and he sits down, um, and he looks in my office, and he sees I had, at the time, I had this, it's now my home office. At the time, it was in my office. I had this line of Bibles, you know, in this p- picture, going to the King James Bible, going through the seven translations and all that, you know. And uh, he'd never heard of that. He didn't even know. And actually, Sam Miles, he was here at a service, and Sam Miles preached on the, the preserved word, you know. And so he had heard it then, and then he came back a few months later. Now, I, I tell you that story because um, everything that he learned in, in college, you know, up at Midwestern Theological Seminary, they would not, they would totally, and they're Baptists, they're Southern Baptists, they would probably, knowing those guys I've talked to, they would, most of them would probably think Origen's a great guy. You know, or they would just, uh, they either wouldn't really fully grasp that he's not, because a lot of times in educational systems like that, it's not a really even about a deep dive on origin. It's about the fact that, that uh, you're receiving uh, the, not, the gnosis, right? You're the, you're the people of knowledge, scholar to scholar. So there's a certain amount of, uh, of that that goes on. And then there's guys that just go through that system to get their degree and grow, go preach. It was a name in a class, and so I, I wouldn't. I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, I think Origin is probably burning in hell, you know, uh, and 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 can climb a, a church father, uh, but that doesn't mean that I, I don't know who's in heaven and who's in hell, and I don't know what was in his heart. I just know what he introduced wasn't good because he is where I'm going with this. Ultimately, is he is the father of textual criticism, which is introducing. Uh, a dynamic equivalence, uh, not because he didn't believe in literal translation. He overruled what the scripture said because he was the Gnostic. He had the knowledge. So he elevated. That's where Nicolaitan system comes in. That's why we see this template in Revelation. This Nicolaitan system eventually gets to the place of these guys imposing their, their knowledge on the word of God. And that is, that's her- heretical. And so um, I, I can tell you that a lot of guys who would quote origin have no earthly idea of, about that so um you know take them where they're at be gracious and kind especially if you think you know more than them don't be a gnostic you know be humble 
And uh, if you really want to find out where they're at, have a conversation. Because you don't really know until you know. A lot of times they may not even really know themselves. So um, thank you for asking that question, though, because I, I, I think I needed to say that out loud. Cause, because us dudes that are Baptists, especially independent Baptists, are, we're known for being pretty fierce. And I'm just a nice guy. So, uh, but uh, I just, I just want to also be, I want to yield for people who don't understand these things. I don't understand everything. I, I, I mean, I don't have all knowledge of everything. So I'm always learning. And so there's room for them to learn as well. And so, um, so he's, he's credited, Origen is credited with leaving Christianity with a great deal of his works on the Old Testament and New Testaments. Yet in reality, it's, uh, he is possibly one of the greatest heretics in, in, uh, in, in Christianity. Uh, and so there's a big difference. So in his early, let me give you a little bit of reasons why I said what I've already said about Origen. In his early life, he was born in 185, mostly, or mo- most likely in Alexandria, the son of uh, Leonidas, who himself was a Christian philosopher. His father was martyred when he was seven, uh, when he was seventeen, being Origen was seventeen. His mother had to hide his clothes because uh, he wanted to be martyred with his father. Uh, instead, he was stuck at home. A year later, he became the head of the school of Alexandria, and so he's only uh, eighteen years old. So that's pretty young to become the head of. That'd be like a, I get martyred next year, and for some reason, you guys go grab Samuel and say, "Okay, you're the next pastor of HBF." You know, well, hey, that's maybe not the best idea, uh, you know. So, um, and so uh, in his life, not only was he a teacher, he was a writer. So, so far, not so bad, right? Seems like, oh, man, this guy, you know, he had a tough go, and he did. Saw his dad get martyred, so hey, hats off to you. Uh, but not only was he a teacher, he was a writer. Uh, he is credited with writing about 6,000 books in his lifetime. That's a lot of books. And uh, is recorded that, that he had many secretaries to write down all his musings. He led a very ascetic life. Uh, let me, okay, pause. What is an ascetic life? Was that like you had too many tomatoes and there's acid in your in your? No, it's not like that. Ascetic, ascetic means uh, someone like you. When you think of uh, the Buddhist monk, right? He denies himself of everything. Uh, so asceticism is when you. You're trying to earn favor with God by denying yourself, you know, fasting, extreme fasting. Of course, we believe in fasting, but we're talking, you're, probably, you're trying to merit favor with God through basically abusing yourself. And so, uh, so he was known for his asceticism, and um, uh, in accordance to the Gospel of Matthew, he only had one coat and no shoes. So where, where he wanted to, he was very literal. Uh, he accepted no money for his teaching and only received from uh, selling of his writings. So, I mean, he's, he was way ahead of, of that fellow out in California, uh, Rick Warren, man. He was way out ahead of him. He accepted no money for those teachings. Uh, he had no bed. Instead, he slept on the bare floor whenever it was that he slept. And, and in accordance with Matthew nineteen twelve, he castrated himself. So he was a little bit of concerned about his... Uh, his uh, carnal desire, so he went ahead and castrated himself. So, the concept of textual criticism uh, is his legacy. Uh, the greatest legacy that Origen left is that, and he is credited as being the father of textual criticism, and the greatest textual critic and the greatest textual critics. He created six column translation of the Old Testament called the uh, Hexapla. The Hexpla is a parallel version containing six different versions of the Old Testament, including the Septuagint. 
And this is the only copy of the Septuagint known to exist, by the way. If you want to really get an original, you're going to have to go uh, into the 2nd century to get one. So many say it was written during the time before Jesus. Um, that's pretty suspect in itself, by the way. Um, anyway, moving on. That's, I'm not going to get into that argument right now. So, uh, but it is the only copy of the Septuagint known to exist that's ancient. And many suggest he is the author of the Septuagint. So the concept of textual criticism is, of course, alive and well today, 21st century. It's an active ingredient to Satan's plan to dumb down God's people and his old trick of questioning and modifying God's word, which we see in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. At the end of this session, I'll take a little bit more time to define textual criticism. So uh, along with that, I'm just going to throw out a few things. Uh, he then is associated with the not only the Septuagint, uh, which came around probably about 200 BC, uh, which is supposedly came around 200 BC by 72 Jews, but probably was written by Origen uh, in you know 200 AD. But uh, the allegorical method is also something he's credited with. And uh, let me just throw out a few rules of textual criticism, just so you know a little bit more about it. The concept is that the shorter wording is pre preferable. Uh, so uh, so. Uh, copiers would add add things the harder wording is uh preferable copiers would dumb down scriptures uh, the wording from which all other wording variants uh, could most easily develop is preferable so how can different words be traced if you do that so they're they're in some ways in some places they add to it some places they dumb it down other places they uh they change out words that you could use to trace through the scripture and um the wording which is most characteristic of the author is preferable. And, and so today, you can, you can pick up a Greek New Testament, Nestle's Greek New Testament, for instance, and you will routinely find what is in uh, the text of many of the, of the New Testaments. They will show you, and they're, at least they're often, not always, but sometimes they're honest, and they will just tell you this is, this is a, an interjection. We're just, we're just putting this in here because this is what we feel like it needs to be because we're the scholars. And so that's still going on to this day. Okay, moving on. So let me talk about origin, get back to our text here. So most of the false doctrines that exist uh, in today's Christianity can be traced back to this one man. So let's talk about his beliefs, because that's important. He rejects, uh, let's see, where am I at? Am I going the wrong way? Now I'm going backwards. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I guess this isn't in your notes. Is it on the screen? So this you can see his beliefs. So he rejected the deity of Christ. If you got notes, you can see this. If you're watching online and don't have notes, uh, by the way, if you need the notes, uh, they, they should be online under the sermon on, uh, on our website. So Brianna should put, put, be putting those up there in a PDF form. So he rejects the deity of Christ, believes in regeneration, or baptism regeneration is what that's called, regeneration by water baptism, the meaning that you get saved by water baptism. Like the Church of Christ still believes that to this day. And so um, he believes that Jesus Christ, the Son, is being eternally begotten by God. Now that's crazy. He believes that after death, there's an intermediate uh, state, that should be state, not stat, in which souls may purge 
their sins. What's that, what's that remind you of? Purgatory. Yeah. Uh, he believed that Satan... And by the way, where would you get the concept of purgatory? Yeah, you would get that probably from the River Styx and uh, Hades, right? So, uh, so FYI. He believed that Satan would be saved uh, one day. And I got I got typos here. I need to fix. He believed in pre-existence of human soul originating with Plato. Plato, who teaches that by the way, pre-existence of the human soul. There's a heretical group. Mormons, yep, very good. So the Mormons teach that. Um, he denied the coming of the millennial kingdom. Uh, so that would be uh, not even all millennial. That's just that's just I don't know what. Uh, he denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but spiritualized it. That's uh, getting into the, to uh, what we were talking about with John on Sunday mornings. That's the kind of stuff that John was dealing in the, with in the very first century. Already in the first century, they were saying, look, Jesus was not a literal person. He was a, he was a spiritual man, but he wasn't a physical man. And they were separating, um, uh, they were separating physical, all physical matter being evil. Jesus couldn't be a physical man and be God. And so John the Baptist, or John the Apostle, was writing about that himself and straightening all that out in the book of First John and the book of John. Jesus is God. All right. Uh, and then he believed in all, in the allegorical method of Bible study, which I think we've talked about pretty length, uh, pretty much at length. So uh, his life and work, he's called the father of textual criticism, which I already told you. He wrote the famous Hexapla, which we've already talked about, and he introduced more than fifty thousand alterations to the biblical text to make the Bible conform to his theology. And so if it didn't match his theology, he just tweaked it a little bit because, well, he knows more. And he creates a version of the Bible based upon his alterations. Constantine adopted it, and then Augustine accepted it. And Augustine is called, you know, he's like the father of the Roman Catholic Church, theologically, who John Calvin, by the way, borrowed. That's where he got uh, institution of Christian religions was from uh, Augustine. So, uh, and finally, Jerome creates the Latin Vulgate and the standard Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. And so there you go with that. Uh, when he died, he left his library to his favorite student, Pamphilius. And when Pamphilius died, he left the corrupt readings to his disciples, or his disciple and famous church historian Eusebius, which Eusebius is also famous. So if, again, you go to in, in, in church history, when you just read church history, Eusebius is not noted as being tied into these guys with any problems. He's just this great, the great church father Eusebius in his history which I'm not saying you can't read it and learn a few things. I'm just saying there's some problems. There's some problems. So uh, so let's talk about this church a little more. Let me pause there. Any questions about that? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. And which I don't want to jump ahead, but when you get to the English Bible, they'll say, well, see, Wycliffe used the Latin Vulgate to translate your English Bible. Is that true or false? It's true, because it was available. But when, with, the, with the Byzantine Empire opening up and the Greek text being made available, they got the, by the time you get to Tyndale, what you got in the TR is, in essence, a reliable transcript from the Greek. And also the English language was being formulated. That often happens. So we still go through that same process today. If we go to, if I'm in Arissa, let's say, that's a real, a real example, I hate to, and if you're watching me in Arissa, you guys understand. Um, you know, we'll be going along preaching, and there's whole passages of Scripture missing. You know, just gone, not there. And they're, like, looking at me, and I'm like, what? And they're like, that's not in our Bible. 
like, oh, it doesn't say that. Like, no, that whole that whole three verses is not here, right? So, oh, okay. So I don't really even know the backstory to all that. What I don't do is take that Bible out of their hands. You know, that's their Bible for now. Now, if God in his providence provides another one that's closer to the TR and to the Word of God, to the English Bible that we have, then praise God. And we'll, be, we'll help them with that if that's what God wants to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's got to be worked out over there because they're the ones that speak the language. It's their heart language. And so God does that process of preserving his word. He did that in English, and he'll do it, he'll do it in any language where people's hearts are open to hear the word of God. But you don't, you don't go in and take out, uh, if I was alive with, you know, if you were alive during the time of Wycliffe, first of all, most people can't read. Second of all, if you could read, you were just lucky to have the Bible in your language because the Church of Rome, the Latin Vulgate, uh, the Vulgate being vulgar language was forbidden, and you would get your you know arms or your head cut cut off by even having access to it, you know because they didn't want you reading the Bible because what they were doing didn't even represent what's said in Latin Vulgate for the most part, other than baptism regeneration, and so it was so they were so far uh, 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 away from what even the Latin Vulgate said, so they certainly didn't want you reading it because then they they were like the king without any clothes at that point, so just a little bit of history there. But yes, ma'am, that's the answer to your question. And so it was a time that um, um, it was a time when real believers uh, will suffer, you know. And Jesus says, "Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer." And so this is uh, this is an interesting thing. Uh, and notice what God calls Rome at this time in history. Uh, he calls he he calls, uh, uh, "Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison." That, that ye may be tried. And so uh, now he's dealing with, uh, at this time in history, Rome is like, is like the devil. Now there's a guy, even when Paul died, he stood before Nero, who is definitely a type of Antichrist, right? And so it's a very wicked city. So let me get to this, number 10. There are 10, Ro- or number three, there's 10 official Roman persecutions. Um, and so... We like to correlate uh, the 10 days, which was obviously historically something that was going on for 10 days, with the 10 Roman persecutions. And so we got them listed here in your notes. There's, uh, you know, uh, starting with Nero in 67 AD, Paul was, uh, you know, a victim of that. Or you could say he was a benefactor because he got promoted to glory through that. And then you had Domitian in 81 AD. You had Trajan in 108 AD. Marcus Aurelius, right? So that's the one when you're watching... Gladiator, Marcus Aurelius, that'd be that era. Um, in 162 AD, uh, he was no friend of Christians. Severus, uh, 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 192. Maximus, in th- uh, 235. Uh, Decius, in 249. Valerian, in 257. Alarian, in 274. And Diocletian, in 303 AD. And so those are noted, and those are not just like church, and, church Christian facts. You know, these are secular uh, and you can find this anywhere, the 10 pagan Roman persecutions. So these were not always, sometimes they were empire-wide, and sometimes they were localized, depending on what the need was at the time. Uh, but these definitely were focused on, uh, you know, uh, common people who believe the word of God getting persecuted uh, to the death. So those are your 10 Roman persecutions. So they were willing to pay the ultimate price, uh, which was death, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Uh, you know, and so um, we're quoting Fox's Book of Martyrs there, but you can see that's right out of the scripture. So the most critical deviation during the church age comes from the synagogue of Satan. 
and that's point three. So the most critical deviation during this church age comes from the synagogue of Satan. And so the teaching of the synagogue of Satan, what is that? Well, the teaching of the synagogue of Satan, uh, they taught that God finished, was, is finished with the Jews. And so uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, and this is uh, very prevalent today. More so today, uh, it's getting worse as the days go on, actually. So I know thy works, it says in verse 9, and tribulation, so we talked about that, and poverty, uh, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are, uh, but are the synagogue of Satan. So because the, the Christian uh, is a spiritual Jew, this is what they're teaching. Because the Christian is a spiritual Jew, he is also a physical Jew. Uh, now, that's a, that's a, that's a, that is just absolutely not true. Uh, Paul does, never says that. You'll never see that in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, he, he distinguishes that, and he never calls Gentiles uh, there's, in Romans 1, he talks about the Israel of God, but everywhere else he is dealing with um, the fact that we're distinct. Even in, Romans, even in Romans 10, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. They are his brethren. Uh, in Romans, uh, let's see, what is that? Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, he's talking to Christians. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, separate from you, uh, is that they might be saved. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And so Paul is identifying himself at this point in Romans as he's writing to this, the Gentile church as a brother. He's not. His, he's obviously. His uh, brethren, the Jews, they are, you know, ethnically his brothers. He's he's a he's a tribe of the tribe of Benjamin. He doesn't deny all of that, but ultimately Israel is is distinctly different. The Jews are different if they're not saved uh, from. And, and by the way, just as a Gentile, a Gentile is not a Christian. Only a born again believer is a Christian, whether Jew or Greek. Right? We all know that. Paul made that clear. So the heresy coming out of out of in this church age is that uh, be Christian a Christian is a spiritual. A Jew and a physical Jew. And okay, so you can see then, we're even before Alexandria, Egypt, right? In Galatia, that's what Paul was trying to get across. Was like, wait, no, that's not true. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to keep the. You don't have to keep Abraham's covenant to be a Christian. You're circumcised spiritually the day you get saved. God cuts your soul away from your. That's the spiritual circumcision. The Jew, the, the physical circumcision does not have anything to do with their salvation at all or their identity in Christ. Um, and so that was, dealing, Paul was dealing with that uh, just a, you know, few, a couple decades after Jesus' resurrection. So all the promises in the Bible were given to Jews <clears throat> and are now ours. Oh, now that's a big problem. So that would mean uh, you know, the, the promises of the land grants, uh, and all that, which as church history goes forward and, and uh, the, the pagan Roman Empire becomes the Holy Roman Empire, the next thing you know, you have a church going to war over physical property. And so that's a problem. Uh, and then the Christian has replaced the Jew. That's called replacement theology. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same. You will hear that commonly today. Um, you know, almost in any, 
in pop evangelical circles. You know, there's not going to be a distinction there. So um, the Christian has replaced the Jew. How many of you ever heard that? Been taught that? Okay. Well, so like Jeff raised his hand. He was brought up a Roman Catholic. They actually believe they are the Israel of God. Uh, not Jeff now, but but the that the church has replaced the nation of Israel, meaning the promises that God gives Israel, the Beatitudes, uh, the land grant that he gave uh, Moses, and he promised through David, and all those promises in the Old Testament. So God still has a kingdom of heaven, uh, the promises of this, the, the, the land grants, the people that's going to be blessed through Israel, all that still stands, all the fulfillment of Zechariah, all the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament that are directly given to Israel will be given to Israel. Okay, so... Uh, so what you believe about the Jews affects what you believe about the millennium. By the way, if you have not heard uh, George Grace's, I only heard two, I only found two sermons on, on uh, Spotify um, that he did uh, at the uh, camp, at the uh, All Church Retreat down in Warrensburg last week. But uh, he preaches on this very topic, how your Bible is a Jewish Bible. You know, Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Revelation. And so uh, what you believe about the Jew affects what you believe about the millennium, right? So there's, there's really three uh, views here. There's the premillennial view, which belie- believes that Christ will return before his thousand-year reign, uh, which, by the way, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we hold to here at Heartland. There's a postmillennial view, which teaches um, that Christ returns after the thousand-year reign begins. Uh, and then there's the all-millennial view, which is that uh, Christ is not coming back to reign for, for a thousand years. And so when you misplace the Jews or you replace the Jews, that'll cause you to believe two uh, and or three. You're either post-millennial or all-millennial. So like Hank Hanegraaff, he would be post-millennial. And, so, and then there's different markers that they put on that and, uh, and ways to twist the scripture to make all that fit. So... Um, so there's other false teachings that also develop during this time uh, <clears throat> when, you, when you lose sight of who, what, what the Jew is all about in the Bible and God's chosen people number one there's baptism regeneration which I've already touched on uh, which in a Jewish audience uh, would make complete sense because that's how God dealt with them in Acts 2.38 uh, because they knew who the Messiah was so they had to acknowledge that and identify with the risen Savior and baptism is how they did that and then they would receive the Holy Ghost. That changes God, Acts chapter 10, takes the gospel to the Gentiles, and then they hear and, and receive, and then Peter's like, oh, I guess we should baptize them, right? Because it was a transitional book. So also tongues uh, is another... Oh, there we go. Uh, tongues is another thing that is affected there. Tongues are a sign for the Jews. So baptism regeneration dealt with Jews... Uh, the tongues that you see in Acts chapter 2 was a sign in Jerusalem for the Jews. Uh, Jews require, 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 1, verse 22, Jews require a sign, uh, Greeks seek after wisdom. And so a sign to verify the veracity of the preaching would often be speaking in other languages that they didn't know. Like in Acts chapter 10, after the, when those Gentiles received the Holy Ghost, they spoke, spoke in other languages as a confirmation to those Jews that were there that the Gentiles indeed have, have received the Spirit of God. It was an evidence to the Jews. It was a sign. So those sign gifts, uh, after the completion of the New Testament, 
went away. And this, of course, um, the next time, by the way, for all of the, the guys that want to argue about signs and wonders, the next time you see signs and wonders are coming up next, right, in the tribulation, signs and lying wonders. So I'm not against, I'm not saying there aren't signs and lying wonders. People say you don't believe in signs and wonders. Oh, I believe in them. I'm just saying you can't trust them. You better, you better be holding fast to the faithful word because there's going to be lots of signs and wonders coming. And you better know what the Bible says uh, or you're going to get caught up in it. Okay, and then uh, apostolic healing, uh, again, a sign to the Jews. So you see that going on today with, uh, with a lot of charismatics, Benny Hinn, all those fellows. Uh, and some, there's some wickedness there. It's interesting how, who's that one guy, uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Copeland, how he started, he started, uh, he started getting close with the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, interesting how faith healers and Rome go together. Um, and then, uh, no eternal security. None of these believe in eternal security. These verses that seem to indicate you can lose your salvation are directed to Jews in the tribulation. Matthew 24, in Matthew 24, 13, and specifically, specifically dealing with enduring to the end to be saved. Uh, you know, verses in James. You could even pull some out of First John if you wanted to, and and uh, and because they are actually dealing with uh, times in the that are dealing with Jews specifically, and they also have a prophetic future con uh, context in the tribulation. So those verses uh, affect uh, are are often twisted and used to say you can lose your salvation. Keeping the carrot and the stick, making a works based system. Not only do you have to get baptized, quote, to be saved, but you're never sure you're saved. That just gets you in the church, and then the church saves you. So you need to, you need to keep coming to, to uh, you know, or, uh, communion. You need to keep taking the Eucharist. You need to keep going through the, the drill. And maybe you're saved. You never have assurance of salvation. All right. So let's talk about some important notes. This is one of the fundamental doctrines upon which Satan will build his counterfeit church. So look in Acts chapter 19. Uh, Acts chapter 19. Because Jesus is building his church, and Satan is building his as well. Acts chapter 19, verse 27. says, So not only is uh, not only uh, this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana, female deity, should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these, th these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is the Diana of, of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having uh, caught Gaius and, and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have uh, entered in uh, unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And a certain of the chief of Asia, uh, which, uh, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater, though obviously he was minded to. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part uh, knew not wherefore they were come together. They were just having a good old time. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, uh, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with his hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew... All with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, "Great is Diana of the Ephesians!" And when the and uh, when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, "Ye men of uh, of Ephesus, what man uh, is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worship for the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter?" Wow, what is that? Uh, seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, she ought to be quiet. 
and do nothing rashly. For you have uh, uh, brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius uh, and the craftsmen, which are with him, have a matter against any, the law is open, and there, is depu- and there are deputies. Let them plead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. And so, uh, and so you see here. I went a little bit further than I was supposed to. Um, uh, these there is a there is there's a there's fundamental doctrines where Satan built his church on uh, are counterfeit. There's fe- there's a here we see a female deity, and there's money, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit further. When someone claims that the promise of the G- of the Jews, he claims to be uh, a Jew. Alexander, uh, he he stand, he steps up here. They drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with his hand and would have made a defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about one space of two hours, cried, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So God calls, <coughs> calls blasphemous uh, this synagogue of Satan. Uh, Christians must not take the promises that God gave the Jew and claim them for themselves. Christians need to leave those promises alone. And so... Uh, look at Proverbs 22 and verse 28. Proverbs 22 and verse 28. So the Christians took Paul out, and the Jews put someone forward. Because they wanted to make it worse on the Christians. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. So ultimately, God is the one in charge. In chapter 23 and verse 10, in, in uh, Proverbs, oh, and in Psalms. I'm sorry, guys. I was like, that isn't right. Somebody got that verse? 22, 28. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And in chapter 23 and verse 10, uh, it says, oops, I went too far. Remove not the old landmark and enter into the fields of the fatherless. And basically what happens is, is folks, they, they leave and they forget uh, where, they, where they've been. When someone claims the promises of the Jew, he claims to be a Jew. And then they claim the promises of Israel. And the next thing you know, uh, it's all messed up. And, they're, and I tell you what, they lose track of what is going on. So in Revelation chapter 2, what's going on here in Smyrna is there are those who say they are Jews and are not. Right? And God's like, I don't like that. These are of the synagogue of Satan. So let's, let's talk about the synagogue of Satan as we wrap up. Because we got, we got a little, I can get all this in before we close. So there's the significance of the synagogue of Satan. God uses this term to describe the counterfeit religious system that Satan is developing in order to inject his doctrines into the minds of unsuspecting people. Uh, and uh, you, you have Daniel chapter 1 dealing with Babylon. I'm not going to turn to that. But uh, in Revelation 17 and 18, it gives us a, a detailed... Uh, it gives us details into the end of his satanic endeavor. Let me just... Uh, get you over there and look at this for a minute revelation 17 and verse 5 because i wish i had more time let me i don't 
when we get to Pergamos, we'll talk a little bit about, about how this develops. So I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So this is kind of laying the, work, the groundwork, I should say, for what we're going to see when we get to Pergamos. But in Revelation 17 and verse 5, there's a mystery that's given here through the Apostle John. And he says, and upon her forehead, let's just back up. Um, let's just read this from verse, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And later on we find those waters are people. It's defined um, at the end of the chapter. Uh, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been uh, drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet colored, and a color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So this, my friends, is the ultimate end of this uh, religious system, this, uh, this, this synagogue of Satan. So we're looking forward. This is yet future, uh, what's going on in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, what happens, just I'll give you the end of the story. Satan, unlike Jesus, what did G Jesus died for his church, his bride. He died on the cross to redeem us. He's a picture, uh, or Boaz was a picture. He redeemed Ruth, right, and, and brought her in. And God, Jesus died on the cross to redeem us, to bring us into the promises. Certainly, our, our, our husband is a Jew, and we've been grafted into the promises. The, our promises are spiritual. We inherit spiritual inheritance. 1 Corinthians 15, or we inherit a, the kingdom of God. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, all over the New Testament, we have a spiritual inheritance, and so uh, Israel, uh, through replacement theology—not Israel, but the synagogue of Satan, I should say rather—through replacement theology, uh, has been working since uh, the first century. Really, starting with the Judaizers, through Alexandria, through Rome, all the way up to this current day, um, uh, many of the even the evangelical churches are, are, are bought into replacement theology to this very day. Um, they'll go right on into the tribulation period, making a deal with the Antichrist and, uh, and the kings of this earth. But unlike Jesus, who died for his bride, when you get to the end of chapter 17, what happens is um, Satan goes ahead and turns his bride over to the kings of the earth for more power. It says in verse 9, And, there, <clears throat> and here is the mind which hath wisdom. Um, oh, wait a minute. Let me get to the... Where does he do that at? Yeah, for time's sake, I'm going to just cut to the chase. Look at verse uh, 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So she's got rule over all the earth, or has influence over all the earth. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, uh, these, these are principalities. These shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And so mystery Babylon religion is directly tied 
uh, to Satan's influence, and ultimately he turns over his his church, right, the synagogue of Satan. He turns it over to the ten horns, which are ten kings in verse twelve, uh, and they ended up they end up destroying her, and he ends up capitalizing on that, right, because it consolidates his power, and so uh, not a very good plan. So Revelation seventeen and eighteen give us some insight to that. Uh, the woman described as actually a city. When you get in verse 18 down there, we just saw, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And so uh, you can see the attributes here. Drunk with the blood of the saints, of the martyrs of Jesus, built on seven hills like Rome, is a political city, uh, is unclean, an unclean city, a drunken city, as influence, influences the world, is a pagan city, uh, has, a, has a golden cup, is a popular city, is a mighty city, a rich city, a commercial city. And so there are only, uh, there's only one city out of 500,000 cities that meet that criteria, and that is, is Rome. So I think most of you probably have heard that before. I've kind of gotten behind on my notes here. And so there we go. All right. And so Smyrna, church age, was a grim time in church history. It, it was a bloody time for the followers of Jesus Christ and uh, Satan, uh, developed uh, a religious counterfeit system that goes by the name Christian in order to deceive the people. And if you, you know, basically if you can't beat them, join them. And that's what he's trying to do. In, Ephesus, in, the, in the Ephesus church age, they began to deviate from the Bible by using words that weren't in the Bible. Uh, like you can see, I don't know, did Mark read the, the excerpt from uh, Polycarp? So Polycarp gets, poor Polycarp, good guy. He followed, you, we have writings of Polycarp. And so he was a disciple of, of uh, I believe, uh, Timothy or John. I can't recall, recollect. But Polycarp, he sent a letter. And in his letter, he quotes a verse most of us would know, I believe, is out of Philippians in, in his letter. And then uh, he didn't quote it exactly. And then uh, down the road, they ended up using that and twisting that. Not that Polycarp was a bad guy at all. Um, but that, you know, the, again, that's what happens over time. So that's what happened in Ephesus. In Smyrna, those deviations became church doctrine. And that's really what, what I'm trying to point out here is that uh, a little bit of leaven leavens the lump. And so they start off a little bit off, and by the time you go another, you know, two, three hundred years, uh, what was just a little deviation ends up becoming the doctrine for the church. And so these things like replacement theology, baptism regeneration, uh, all, these, all these heresies that were going on in the, in the, uh, that John was fighting against, right, with Gnosticism, asceticism, um, and all of those things uh, now become church doctrine, and they're embraced. And so there's still, uh, there's still, by the way, true Bible believers during this time. There's uh, Montanists, um, there's Novations, and uh, and I, I I'm out of time, or I would read a little bit about that, but we'll we'll get into we'll get into some of that, uh, you know, later. But uh, let me see if I've got any anything quick on. Yeah, I'm just going to stop right there. Let me pause. You guys have any questions on where, what we've covered tonight? So the main thing about that time is there's, I didn't get into a lot of it. There's not a lot. You can go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they'll have examples of the, of the martyrdoms. Uh, but, of course, a lot of those records have been lost over the years. A lot of what they had was burnt, to the, uh, burnt and destroyed and what have you. But there is still some record. The further you get into church history, and the printing press and all that, the more details you get in all of these things. Plus the Rome, Rome later when you get into um, the later church ages, they were meticulous in actually recording their persecutions. So it's very heinous, disgusting. That's just a few hundred years ago. So um, 
uh, so the main thing that we want to remember, though, is not to deviate from the Word of God and lose those landmarks. The, the Word of God, God gives us the landmarks to go by. It's not scholarship and scholasticism, though there's nothing wrong with knowing things. It's, but you cannot let man's knowledge eclipse the Word of God because God gives us the template for church history right here in the Bible. All right? So any questions, comments? Yes, Ron. Yeah, today, today, that's a great example, Ron. So thank you for bringing that up. He's like, good, there's a lot of good Bible teachers like J. Vernon McGee and guys like that, old Presbyterian, that uh, he was a good Bible teacher and, and held to the word pretty, pretty much, but he, he deviated every so often and corrected it, but, which isn't a good thing. Uh, but you can't, once you leave, you know, a lot of people think that, and I think a lot of people are, you know, they hold to the authorized version of King James Bible, because it is tradition, because it's what their daddy did or their, or their Bible college told them or whatever, which isn't any better than the guy who doesn't know any difference in the church fathers because that's what he learned at Bible college. So that's not a heartland, all right? So I just want everybody to know that. The reason we hold the King James Bible is because you miss truth if you don't have. I mean, I'm not saying you can't get truth out of another Bible, but it's like water. You know, if I, I want my water, I want it pure when I'm drinking it. <clears throat> Now, I can put a little dirt in here and drink it, and I'll probably be fine, you know. And if I'm starving to death and I'm going to die in a desert, give me some dirty water, I'll drink it, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, you want pure water. And if you got it, well, why wouldn't you, why, why, why would you want dirty water if you got pure water? And so things like, that Ron's, a very good example of what he's bringing up about, and a lot of people, if you're listening from the outside, you, you, you may even be taught that there, many teachers today would say there is no distinctions between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And their Bibles will, will, will show that. They interchange the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, and you lose it uh, because it's not distinguished. Matthew deals primarily with the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Luke touches on the kingdom of God. There's places where the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are interchanged in the Gospels. Why? Because they were both at hand. And God is revealing some truth about that. And so, uh, and so the, the Bible skeptic says, oh, we make a ruling here. They're all the same. And once they say that, then that's what's written. And then that's what everyone teaches and believes. And the next thing you know, you remove that ancient landmark. And you're taking the promises, kingdom of heaven promises, physical promises that God gave to Israel. And you're applying them to the church. Or you don't even understand another, good pro another problem, not a good problem, another problem that comes from that is you're trying to understand end times prophecy, right? And now you're in Matthew 23, Matthew 24, mumbling and fumbling and bumbling around, not recognizing this is dealing with the Jews in the coming tribulation. Instead, and now you're applying it to the church, which happens all the time in evangelical circles. Uh, you, all the time we're using passages that apply to Israel and even tribulation raptures that have nothing to do with the rapture of the church, and they apply it to the church because they don't know any better. And so... Uh, that's what happens when you remove the ancient landmark. And so uh, we got to make sure that we don't do that. Don't hold fa Ephesus, getting back to that major point, Ephesus lost their first love. They lost the word of God. Don't let, don't, let your, don't let the preacher become the standard. The Bible is the standard. It is the truth. All right? Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Thanks, Ron. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together and